This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE Online Pass. Try it for free for a month. Go to www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, see the MCLE website. You know, I've been unfortunate or fortunate to teach this at the LLM program, and it's two hours, 13 weeks, 26 hours, and sometimes yeah. we feel like we're just scratching the surface, but probably the best way, but is, you, you know, I would say there's no place except for the mafia where you keep two sets of books, but you do in the LLC partnership pass-through world. Uh, we just have to understand that there are two sets of books going to be maintained, capital on the one hand and basis on the other. And if I put a, uh, if it's the three of us are going to form an LLC and I put in a, let's say I have the property that they think they can develop, my basis in the property is zero because I've had it for years, but the property's worth 100000 when I put that in, I'm going to expect Jay and Vanessa to put in a hundred each. So Jay's capital account is a hundred. His basis is a hundred. Jay's when Vanessa puts in a hundred, her capital account is a hundred, and her basis in the partnership interest is a hundred. Me, on the other hand, my capital account is a hundred because that's the fair market value of the property. Um, my basis in my membership interest is zero. So I got to be careful with cash distributions and so forth, because you can't have a basis that goes to zero. Then you get into the basis of the property to the partnership is zero. So just this concept of two sets of books, very, uh, very odd for someone with an accounting background, because everything we're taught in CPA school is uh, assets go on the books at your basis, you know, so it's kind of an, a, a unique, um, a unique world where there are really two sets of books. But when you look at a balance sheet on a partnership tax return, that's all about uh, fair market value. Uh, and you're keeping a separate set of books internally to compute depreciation and so forth. So, so, so with that, I'm going to pick up this non-recourse debt and I always like to tell the story. I was a young buck one time and I, I happened to have an LLC agreement or it, at those days it was a partnership agreement. And there were all these provisions that I thought were fascinating. Uh, you know, 5.5 capital accounts. Oh, great. The next one was allocation of profits and losses. Um, but then it got into something even more fascinating Tax allocation 704C of the code, regulatory allocations, minimum gain charge back, 
member minimum gain chargeback, qualified income offset, gross income allocation, non-recourse deductions, member non-recourse deductions, 754 adjustments, and the curative allocation. So I asked my supervisor at the time, can we just go over these? And I was told, we don't need to. They're in every agreement. Don't worry about them. And that, of course, pissed me off, much like my doing the table. I said, this, 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 can't, be, this can't be that difficult. There's got to be a way to explain all this. And as I would teach, I would say, all we really want the lawyers to do is not be afraid of these sections, but be able to basically explain the sections. And in order to understand where we are today, we've got to go back to 1980. And yes, that was the Reagan revolution. You know, one of the things that he did, that's why Jay mentioned, we kind of remember those days, Vanessa, not so much. It's a matter of history. Um, but, 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 but in those days, in order to stimulate the economy, the first thing that happened is Congress passed legislation that reduced the depreciation period to 15 years. You know, if you buy a piece of property for, let's say, a million dollars, aside from land, you can write it off over 15 years. And it really jump-started the syndication business, the real estate business. And, 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 and so if Jay and I, this goes back to, like I say, 1980, we're saying, look, let's do this. Let's buy a piece of property that's worth a million, but we're going to pay two million for it. And we're going to give the seller a million in cash, either through money that we raised, and we're going to give the seller a non-recourse note. In other words, the game we're playing with the IRS is we're going to pay $2 million, but we really don't have any risk of non-payment. We don't have to bear the consequences if we foreclose or we walk away. It's non-recourse debt. Good luck. So what you found were these properties were being um, overpaid sometimes double, sometimes triple. And these would be purchased by a limited partnership. Jay and I would be the general partners through an LLC or S Corp at the time. Um, and then we'd go out and find investors and they would pony up the cash. We would have very little money in the deal. They would pony up the cash and what they were buying was tax losses. There really was no economic incentive for any reasonable rate of return. Literally, these were being subsidized. These losses were all flowing through to the partners because I'm having the, the property on the books with a basis of $2 million. We're writing it off over 15 years, hugely accelerated depreciation. And Jay and I don't really want any losses. So it was set up so that all the investors would share in the losses. And you basically had losses way in excess of what they put in to the, uh, to, the, to, uh, to, the, to the partnership. And so all these would be basically these losses. The return, if you will, was in the form of tax refunds. Then eventually the depreciation rate went to 18 years. Today it's 39 for commercial, 27 and a half. So you don't have that gamesmanship. But I, I remember a student about three classes in saying, why would anybody do this? You're telling me that there was no internal rate of return. And I would say, yeah, there was no rate of return. They were basically selling tax losses. 
But all of this really de it de depended upon the nature of non-recourse debt. And we have to, you, you really can't understand minimum gain financing with debt until we take a look at an old case called the Crane case. This is a 1947 case. But if we just spend a minute on Crane, we'll understand what these provisions are all about. So and it, it, Crane would be called the grandfather of tax shelters. And so what happened in Crane, this woman inherited property, real estate. It was worth about 200, well, who knows what it was worth, but the property that she acquired was encumbered by a $250,000 uh, non-recourse debt. And so for estate tax purposes, the value on the tax return was reported at 250, the amount of the debt. Then she depreciates that property for about five or six years. And so the initial basis was 250. The depreciation was 50. That means her basis was 200 when she decided to walk away from it. Well, instead of walking away, she found someone that paid her like three grand. And she had to pay a broker 500. So what she does is she reports a taxable gain of 2,500 bucks, 3,000 cost of the deal. And the IRS comes along and says, wait a second, wait a second. You got all these depreciation benefits. Your gain is not gonna be based upon the cash you received. Your gain is going to be determined by the amount received will always be the amount of the non-recourse debt. So in our case, she bought the well, she inherited the property with a with debt of 250. She paid no debt down, but she depreciated the property to 200. The IRS says your gain is going to be 250, the amount of the debt. Your basis is 200. Aside from the 3,000, you have a $50,000 gain. And the Supreme Court of the United States said, You're right. Um, the amount realized when property is subject to a debt, even if you walk away from it, foreclose, whatever, the amount realized will always be the amount of the debt. And that gets us into these non-recourse deductions, minimum gain, et cetera. So let's, in a nutshell, the, the, the answer is you may not if you take advantage of the tax benefits of depreciation attributable to property financed with non-recourse debt, you may never have to pay the bank back because it's non-recourse. But when you walk away from that property or transfer your membership, you will have to recognize gain. The amount realized will always be the amount of the non-recourse debt. And to the extent that that exceeds the property's basis, you wind up with what is called minimum gain. I guess I could say if someone, a client asked me to explain this, I'd say, this has to do with non-recourse debt and depreciation. Oh, we're not going to have any non-recourse debt. Don't worry about it. But at least you can get through it. But let's just take a look at this example on the screen here. We got partners A and B construct a building. A and B each contribute 100000 in equity. Let's call that cash. The partnership borrows 800,000 from the bank. 
and it's an NR non-recourse. And yeah, there's a lot of non-recourse lenders out there for sure. So we bought the building for a million bucks. So the building has a basis of $1 million. Are you there, Vanessa? Can you flip to the next page? She's still with us. You can flip to the next page. Okay, hold on. Yeah. It's not letting it's me. Great, there we go. Great example. So, so now... In order to understand where this minimum gain, minimum gain chargeback, non re So what's happening here is the first, and, and, and we're going to assume in this example that the depreciation is a hundred dollars, a hundred thousand per year. So in order to really understand this, we always have to assume that the cash in is equal to the cash out, and that the only expense that creates a tax loss would be depreciation. In other words, $100,000 worth of income, $100,000 worth of expenses, cash flow neutral. But now we throw in $200,000, it was $100,000 worth of depreciation in the first year. Um, so the question is, when you look at all these provisions, were there any non-recourse deductions in the first year? The answer is no. What about the second year? There's $100,000 worth of depreciation. Were there any non-recourse deductions in the second year? The answer is no. And basically, these deductions that you're reporting in the first and second year are applied against what you put into the deal. You know, you're, it, 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 here, each of the partners put in 100. They got $50,000 worth of depreciation. Their basis goes down to 50. The next year, their basis goes down to zero. Their capital investment was 100. It's gone down to 50, gone down to zero. So at the end of year two, just before year three, hmm, this is when we're going to take a look at whether there are non-recourse deductions or whether there's minimum gain, minimum gain chargeback. Because what's happening in the third year, well, there's going to be another $100,000 worth of depreciation spun out to the two partners. Well, the partner A put in 100, took $50,000 of depreciation in the first year, that reduces the basis to 50. Another 50 in the second year, that brings the basis to zero. Well, we can't have a negative basis, so how in the world are is this partner A and B how are they going to report and take advantage of a $50,000 loss, $100,000 in total, in the third year? And this is where uh, two rules come into play. The first rule is that, and this is incredible, partners, not shareholders, they get basis through non-recourse debt. Uh, incredibly, I said initially that partner A's basis was 100 money in. Partner B's basis was 100. But the minute they borrowed 800,000 on a non-recourse basis, they get credit for that. So A's basis was really 500. 400 from the non-recourse debt, 50%, and then 100. And so that third year, because of the uh, non-recourse basis allocation rules, that $50,000 loss is going to be utilized uh, by partner A and partner B. Now let's go over to the capital account. Here, uh, the non-recourse debt 
does not provide uh, capital. And as Vanessa, you had mentioned that capital accounts can go negative, and here's why. So in the in the in the in the third year, what we're going to have, we have a hundred thousand dollars worth of depreciation, fifty thousand apiece. So the first thing we do, the capital account can go negative if there's a quote minimum gain chargeback. And let's just try to put the math together. The property here was purchased for a million. The first year of depreciation of 100 left the basis at 900. The second year of depreciation at 100 left the basis at 800. Okay, the next year, this is the third year, there's depreciation of 100. That means the property's basis, remember it was a million, is now 700. Well, the Crane case tells us the members can walk away from the debt, but they cannot walk away from the tax obligation. What tax obligation are they referring to? Here, the code assumes doomsday scenario. So what happens is, yeah, you, you, yeah, you have it right. Yeah, I'll have to go through that. But, but basically, in the third year, what you're going to wind up with is you have to say, if the property is foreclosed or if the person walks away from it, the amount realized under Crane will always be the amount of the debt, 800. Haven't paid a dime back. What is the basis of the property? 700. That's known as minimum gain. And the minimum gain rules are designed to allow the capital account to go negative with the recognition that if they walked away from this deal, okay, you got $50,000, $100,000 combined of tax losses. But when you walk away from this, even if you don't put any money in, you're going to have to uh, bear your share of the minimum gain. Yeah, that, that exactly, exactly. So the only thing we can hope for right here is don't sweat these provisions. You're not going to have a, a minimum gain chargeback. You're not going to have non-recourse deductions unless you're really in the real estate world where the partnership LLC has borrowed money on a non-recourse basis, essentially. So try not to fret too much these provisions, just a general explanation. Vanessa, you any any comment on that? Just I mean, it's 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 very difficult to understand the provisions unless you see this beautiful example. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that um, the way I think of it is you can take capital accounts negative if they're if you have minimum gain to support it. Yeah, um, and, and and that's the and the minimum gain is just basically assume the property is going to be foreclosed. Gain minimum gain comes in when the amount of the non-recourse debt exceeds the basis. Like in this example, the amount realized would always be eight hundred thousand. After the third year, the basis would be seven hundred thousand minimum gain of a hundred. Go to the That's fourth year. No. So, so this yeah. is every year. There's going to be an increase in gain. So let's let's yeah. uh, let's let's just again a couple of uh, a couple of uh, we we just talked about minimum gain, minimum gain chargeback, and all that. And where that all come from? Well, the IRS basically says that if you're going to have an LLC. Your profit allocations have substantial economic effect. 
And what that basically means is capital accounts must be maintained in accordance with the regulations. Yeah, I, I love all these provisions, but- um, Yeah, I'm going back and, here. You know, I, 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 it's, it's just something not to be afraid of because you can really identify when it's gonna happen, et cetera. Uh, but here's the thing, they, the, the, the partnerships, it says basically you gotta maintain capital accounts, fair market value, um, under liquidation of the partnership, uh, this is a liquidation, the distributions must be made in accordance with the positive capital account balances. And then the third standard is problematic, but it's solved with these rules regarding minimum gain, minimum gain chargeback and qualified income offset. Basically says if a partner has a deficit balance in his capital account following the liquidation of interest in the partnership, then he must unconditionally be obligated to restore the deficit by the later of, et cetera. You can't have your client sign a partnership agreement that has a deficit restoration obligation. That's crazy because you just don't know. And obviously, if you have a negative capital account and you have to pay the money back, well, that negative capital account is going to be permissible. It has substantial economic effect. And so but nobody's going to sign a partnership with this unlimited obligation to restore a capital account. So this is where the IRS comes in with the alternate test and uh, minimum gain, minimum gain chargeback, et cetera. So uh, we, I think hopefully we get the idea. And as I say, if you have no life like me, you can pick up any operating <laughs> agreement and you'll see these provisions. Let me, let me continue with a couple of other hot button topics here. Uh, Vanessa talked about the formation tax-free, which is great, but what's really important is the ability to break a partnership down without any gain recognition. And this comes up in the context of LLCs undertaking a sale of real estate, for example, where one or more of the partners wants to do a 1031 exchange. This happens all the time. Let's assume that Vanessa, Leo, and Jay, we own an LLC that the property's worth a million dollars, a three, let's say three million. I'm gonna say the property's basis is zero. So if the LLC sells it, there's gonna be a $3 million gain. My share is a million. I'm not concerned because my investment advisor has generated a million dollars in losses. So I'm good. When you allocate the million dollar gain to me, it's not gonna be taxable, but Jay has a better investment advisor. He wants to take his share of the million and do a 1031 exchange. Well, he can't at the LLC level. That has to happen with a drop and swap. And what basically the partner, you can't do this with a uh, S corporation, but when Vanessa mentions that distributions of appreciated property to a partner in a partnership are tax-free, that's what's happening. So if we all agree, Vanessa, myself, and Jay, we'll say, okay, Jay, you want to do your 1031 exchange? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to distribute, we're going to have the partnership distribute a one-third interest in the real estate that's going to be sold. Jay will own that as a tenant in common with the LLC. There'll basically be two sellers at that point, Vanessa and I as part of the LLC and Jay as an individual owning a one-third interest as a tenancy in common with the LLC. Jay gets his million, he hires First American Exchange, and he can go off and do his 1030, he can do his 1031 exchange. You just can't do this with an S-Corp. 
Jay mentioned code section 311B. I highlight that at least a dozen times. This is a sec, this is a code section dealing with corporations. You can't distribute appreciated property from a corporation, whether it's an S Corp or a C, without a taxable event. But 311B is not in subject to K. So it's 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 you you love to be able to take advantage of the like kind uh, exchange rules. Another uh, a hot topic is you're trying to get equity to a shareholder. Again, if 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 uh, just again, if Vanessa, myself, and Jay own a corporation, and let's assume that it's worth three million, and we want to bring in a ten percent shareholder who is absolutely great, well, unfortunately, under the corporate rules. We transfer a 10% interest to the shareholder, and all of a sudden, there's $300,000 worth of taxable income. Uh, that, that property, the membership interest, was exchanged basically for services. Well, the LLC world, the partnership world, offers us profits interest. Same set of facts, except we're doing business as an LLC. We have a 10% key person. We're going to say here, you can have 10%, but you're not going to get 10% of the existing equity. You're going to get 10% of the profits going forward. And if we ever sell, you're going to get 10% of the difference between the sale proceeds and basically the $3 million that it's worth today. Non-taxable event. Much easier to bring in a key shareholder when you have uh, an LLC way more complicated with a corporation. They might want to buy the shares, but another another very important uh, section. Oh. Uh, Vanessa, code section 736. There's a couple of cases out there that describe this as the most incomprehensible provision in all of tax law, including international. And it's probably true, uh, but it's a football that a lot of taxpayers can, uh, that clients can fall into. And what uh, you had mentioned that, at the time of liquidation, well, let's just, again, Vanessa, myself, and Jay, we're running a consulting business. It's not a, a real estate business. Capital is not a material income-producing factor. This is a clause that runs throughout the Internal Revenue Code. But anyway, we agree that the membership interest is worth a million. The company's worth three. They're fine. Let's get rid of them. Uh, I have a lawyer who's not a tax lawyer, and Whereas Leo wants to withdraw, whereas the value is a million, whereas they pay me my million, I'm really happy until tax season comes along. I realized that those sons of guns um, have deducted the million dollars as a profit allocation. And now my CPA tells me I got to pick this up as ordinary income. Well, that can't be right. I just sold my membership interest. I should be getting capital gain treatment wrong. This is a football. Uh, and, and, and anybody in this world knows that this can happen. But the, on the other hand, if this LLC owned real estate and they paid me a million, I'm going to get capital gain treatment. But the football in connection with the withdrawal, if you happen to be representing a member, in order to prevent that from being a uh, ordinary income event, you just have to put an agreement together that says, whereas Leo's withdrawing from the service company, whereas he's going to get a million bucks, whereas it's for goodwill, that's the key term, 
that converts my ordinary income to capital gain treatment. It's not as good for Vanessa and Jay because they can't write that off right away. They've got to write that off over 15 years. Uh, let me see, we got a couple of more minutes. So, so 736, good luck reading that. I think you're better rock reading minimum gain, minimum gain chargeback provisions. Code section 754, you mentioned that Vanessa. In the estate planning world, uh, the, again, let's just assume, Vanessa, that you and I and Jay own that part, that LLC. I have a one-third membership interest. We're going to undisputed that the value of my interest is a million because we've had the property appraised. So that's a million dollars. Well, on my estate tax return, I have to, well, I'm dead, but my family has to report the million dollar value. Great. That means I have a step up in basis in the membership interest. I don't have a step up in basis in my share of the one-third property. Well, that's what 754 allows the partnership to do. And I emphasize the partnership. If I can take the million-dollar basis, which is attributable to my death, and allocate that to a one-third share or the partner's one-third share of the real estate. Now, the basis of the property as to my share is a million bucks, which means if it's sold for three million, there's no capital gain. If there's no, uh, if there's no sale and there's depreciation, well, I'm going to get all that extra depreciation attributable to the one million dollars. The issue, of course, is 754 is not something that the decedent does or the family does on their own. It has to be done by the partnership. And the footfault is that it needs to be done quickly. Um, all it is, is a statement attached to the LLC partnership return for the year in which the partnership interest ex is exchanged, basically death. Uh, too often, you know, if, if, I mean, if someone dies you know, late in the year, you don't even file the estate tax return for nine months. You don't even know what the value is. And everybody wants to get their LLC partnership return filed. Uh, many partnership agreements will actually say at the outset that in the case of a death, and this also applies if there's a sale, instead of me dying, I sell my partnership interest to someone else. Um, they can make a 750. Well, the partnership makes the 754 basis adjustment. Um, the the I'm going to just conclude with the real estate world, and it, it basically buy real estate, borrow to your heart's content. You're always going to get basis through the non-recourse debt. Make distributions. These are not just losses coming through. All these real estate people, they buy, let the property appreciate, borrow. The, uh, you're not going to have a taxable event because the partners pick up basis through the through the uh, non-recourse debt rules. You can have a negative capital, but then die, you know, because at that point everything is purged. There's in in, in we don't have to turn to it, but there's a there's a a regulation section that I included at the end of my material that tells you how uh, buy, borrow, and then die. And on death, the property gets a stepped up in basis. The, the uh, it, it, again, if, let, let's say that the property that we have, Vanessa, is $3 million. Um, let's say that we've put no, no debt to begin with, uh, but we have, let's say, 
$900,000 worth of debt now. We just took it out and I spent my 3,000 on a cruise and Jay took golf lessons or something. It might, might, might be more than that though, Jay, if I remember how much it would take. <laughs> but but uh, you know, obviously my equity in the property is the fair value. But I want a $10,000 distribution. You think, I don't know if that's enough, Jay, you, know, you and I. <laughs> so, but anyway, that, that these are the footballs. Um, in order to understand a lot of this, we have to know where we came from. Today, we're not out selling tax shelters really anymore. People are looking for some reasonable return on their investment. So, so Jay, with that, it's about quarter of, and we're going to reserve a little bit of time for questions. So if there are any questions other than why did I even listen to this program? Uh, perfect. Let me, I'll turn uh, it back to you, Jay. <laughs> uh, see if we go.